Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. I think you dozed off there. Ladies and gentlemen, when I was a kid, I think it was even before I was a kid, before in my, in my prenatal years, there was a guy on the radio out of Chicago who had one of the most peculiar network radio shows ever broadcast. Let me just say this. It was an agriculture show, you know, basically aimed at farmers, with a live band. You know, those were the days. But he started every week. His name was Everett Mitchell. That I remember. He started every week the same way, like everybody. But, I mean, his way was, it's a, and it was not conversationally spoken. Let me just make it clear right there. I'm going to be taking it down a little bit from his, his performance level. It's a beautiful day in Chicago. Oh, it's a little on the windy side. Temperatures hovering in the high 20s. Snowfall begin about four hours from now and continue through the night. But it's a great day to be alive, and I hope it's even more beautiful wherever you are. That comes to my mind today, peculiarly enough, because it is a beautiful day in New Orleans. It's early summer. The breezes have not taken off for other climes yet. But we are just in the middle of ceremonies of remembrance for a giant and a pioneer of the New Orleans culinary scene, Leah Chase. And smack in the middle of that comes the uh, news that one of New Orleans' musical giants, Dr. John MacRabinac, has passed. The third of New Orleans' piano giants to leave us in the last three years. First it was uh, Alan Toussaint, last year Henry Butler, and now Dr. John. In addition, we're... Still just beginning to absorb the news that the new $14 billion federal uh, uh, protection system for, uh, for, you know, risk reduction for hurricanes built by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Now the Corps reveals, even though it had uh, promoted the system as having a 50-year lifespan, that it will stop affording us protection in as little as four years because of Sea level rise, who saw that coming, and land subsidence. Now, one of the known causes of land subsidence, something you'd think the Corps might be aware of, have been aware of over these years, was the levying of the Mississippi River following the 1927 flood by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. It it contributed to land subsidence because the Mississippi was now no longer refurbishing, replenishing the uh, land of the Delta in its flooding. It was no longer allowed to flood. So the land was no longer being rebuilt. Therefore, yeah. But they didn't, I guess, take that in. Slide rule wasn't working that day. Anyway, it's a great day to be alive. And I hope it's even more beautiful wherever you are. And now, Let me tell you about the bees. Yeah. well, it's not just one thing that's bothering the bees. It's a combination of ingredients, like the, uh, like the best over-the-counter pharmaceuticals. This week, scientists at the Institute of Bee Health at the University of Bern 
say hello to the bear when you're there. And the and a honeybee research association published an article in Scientific Reports. It's a peer-reviewed journal that shows a synergistic but time-delayed interaction between a parasitic mite, Varroa destructor, and our old friend's neonicotinoid insecticides. They together reduce the survival of winter honeybees. The article emphasizes the need to develop sustainable agricultural and apicultural bee-raising schemes. Western honeybee is the most important managed pollinator globally. I think they're managed by uh, Ken Levitan these days. And has recently experienced unsustainably high colony losses in many regions of the world. Primarily responsible are believed to be synergistic interactions among various stressors, things that stress honeybees. Not traffic. Traffic is, is out of the picture. Despite the clear negative impact of certain neonicotinoids and the ubiquitous parasitic mite Varroa destructor on exposed honeybees, no data had previously existed to show, to show synergistic effects between these two. Now, these uh, researchers suggest a novel, possibly previously overlooked mechanism for the recent unsustainably high losses of the managed honeybee colonies. Study li- underlines the importance of developing sustainable agroecosystem management schemes, reduced use of ne- neonicotinoids, and sustainable solutions for the mites. The mites came from Asia, by the way, <laughs> and have switched their hosts from eastern honeybees to western honeybees. You know, tastes change. They are now the most serious bi- biotic threat to western honeybees. And, of course, there's been evidence all along for the negative impact of the neonicotinoid insecticides. But now, honeybee colonies exposed to the to two nicotinoids, they, uh, those colonies did not affect honeybee worker longevity when, in combination with the infestation of the mites, a synergistic negative effect was observed, both for body mass in summer and autumn, And uh, for for survival, that effect only occurred 16 weeks after the exposure to the insecticide. So it's a previously overlooked time lag effect of neonicotinoid exposure in the presence of the mites. Those mighty mites. Honeybee colonies in temperate regions must produce significant quantities of long-living winter bees to survive these observed negative synergistic effects on individual honeybee longevity during the winter most likely compromise colony survival. So it's two, two, two stressors in one. Pity the poor bees. Hello, welcome to the show. Bye. 
from New Orleans, Louisiana, where uh, just eyeballing as coming in today, driving in. Yeah, I still drive. I'm no, I didn't. I didn't scooter in. Uh, Corps of Engineers still working over there, right? You know, yonder, over there. From that self-same New Orleans, I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you. They're not finished yet. It ain't finished yet. And it's, no, it's not going to work in four years. But they're still... F- I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen... I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, I am. Microplastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, I will. Enough said. Or maybe not. Here's the latest. A new study from the Scripps Institution of Oceanography shows that microplastics are at highest concentrations, hundreds of meters below the ocean surface. So good swimming, everybody. Minuscule pieces of plastic are pervasive not just on the surface, but well into the deep sea. That's according to the new research published from Scripps. It says deep sea animals could be at risk of exposure to these plastics, toxic materials. Can we make Tums for them? Researcher Anella Choi has spent more than two years studying microplastics. She's used a deep diving robot, using it to scoop out water from Monterey Bay. Oh, well, Monterey. We wanted to look at the vertical extent of microplastic pollution, she said. She found lots of this material deep below the ocean surface. We found microplastic everywhere we looked, she said. From shallow depths in the water column down to the deepest depths, we also found them in the bodies and guts, I said guts, of every animal specimen we looked at. She said her study is one of the first to systematically look at about how much plastic is concentrated at different levels into the deep blue sea. She didn't look at the devil, though, just at the deep blue sea. And just at their guts. No, not just at their guts. The rest of them, too. Americans consume more than 70,000 microplastic particles every year. From the food we eat, the water we drink, and the air we breathe. That's according to a new study published in the journal Environmental Science and Technology. What would they know? Scientists warn that while the health impacts of ingesting these thousands of tiny particles are unknown, so eat up. No, they say there's potential for the plastic to enter human tissue and cause an immune response, as well as release toxic chemicals into the body. The immune response would be, of course, inflammation, which if if you're following this stuff, sort of is the the cause of everything else, except for Donald Trump. The analysis done by biologists at the University of Victoria in Canada examined data from 26 previous studies on microplastic contamination in seafood, sugars, salts, honey, alcohol, tap water, bottled water, and in urban air. It found that Americans eat and drink an estimated 39,000 to 52,000 microplastic particles every year, depending on age and sex. I didn't know microplastics had sex. But, no, seriously, those numbers jumped to 74,000 to 121,000 when the scientists included particles that would be inhaled as opposed to ingested. Still going in. Different, different route, you see. The nose rather than the mouth. And then this is the part that rankles me. 
Americans who drank water solely from plastic bottles consumed an additional 90,000 particles annually, compared for 4,000 particles, compared to 4,000 particles for people who drank only tap water. This study, therefore, makes no distinction between bottled tap water, which is most of what people drink out of plastic bottles, and spring water. Just, just a thing. The scientists warn their findings are likely drastic underestimates. Only 15% of a person's caloric intake is associated with the consumption of up to 52,000 microplastics annually. The researchers note that several major U.S. food groups like your poultry, your beef, your dairy, your grains, and your vegetables, haven't been studied for microplastic contamination. In addition, the scientists weren't able to assess how much plastic might be entering our bodies from food packaging. Well, fortunately, none of our food is packed. Oh. All right, then. All right, then. Try not to swallow. Try not to breathe, okay? Let me know how that works out. Now some news of the smart world we're in. There was uh, some trouble for Google users this week as they tried to access Google-owned services. Midweek, Google reported several issues with its cloud platform, which, in case you haven't realized this yet, is not in the sky and isn't really a cloud. It's a metaphor, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, The cloud. Uh, Google's cloud platform had several issues, which made several Google sites slow or inoperable. Well, you can't search. Wait, there's more. Many of Google's services, including Gmail and YouTube, oh, no, where am I going to get my racist videos from, were slow or completely down for users in the U.S. and Europe. The outage also affected third-party apps and services that use Google Cloud Space for hosting, such as Snapchat, and Apple's iCloud services. Yes, Apple uses Google's cloud. Especially annoying side effect, though, was Nest smart home products for some users. Google owns Nest. The, they just fail to work, you know, like your smart locks and your smart lights and your smart this and your smart that. According to reports from Twitter, many people were unable to use their Nest thermostats, Nest smart locks, and Nest cameras during the downtime. Because of a cloud storage outage, people were prevented from getting inside their homes using their AC and monitoring their babies. It's not a, that's not a, a warning. That's not a shot across the bow of modern life, is it? The company says a network congestion issue in eastern USA was causing the problems. Then they were then later resolved. The downtime of Google's cloud platform goes a long way to showing what can happen when smart technology in the home requires always being connected to the cloud that's not really a cloud. And a smart city project in Canada. Also with Google, this uh, if this reminds you of Anything mentioned in last week's broadcast, good on you. The Smart City Project in Canada has hit yet another snag. Mounting delays and privacy concerns threaten the controversial development along Toronto's eastern waterfront. So they may be getting an NBA championship, but they're not getting this smart city right away. 12-acre project is a partnership between Google's Sidewalk Labs 
can we just experiment with your city in our lab and the city of Toronto? That's the partnership. It's come under increasing scrutiny amid concerns over privacy and data harvesting. I said uh, privacy, and I also said data harvesting. More data. More data. We need more data. Come on. More data. More data. Huh? Get some data for me. More data. More data. More data. We need more, more. I don't know how anybody could be worried about that. This week, the U.S. venture capitalist, however, Roger McNamee, however, warned that technology companies such as Google cannot be trusted to safely manage the data they collect on residents. McNamee just happens to be an early investor in both Facebook and Google. That's how he might know whereof he speaks. Quote, the smart city project on the Toronto waterfront is the most highly evolved version to date of surveillance capitalism. Does that phrase ring a bell, ladies and gentlemen? He wrote that to the city council, suggesting Google will use its algorithms to nudge human behavior in ways to favor its business. Pokemon Canada, anybody? He's co-founder of one of the world's largest technology investors. In recent years, he's soured on many of the technology giants and their handling of data and privacy concerns. He says, no matter what Google is offering, the value to Toronto cannot possibly approach the value your city is giving up. It is a dystopian vision that has no place in a democratic society. There's going to be a vote on the development. The uh, timeline has been adjusted to make the vote happen later. And late last year, the co-founder of Research in Motion, which makes BlackBerry, called the project a, quote, colonizing experiment in surveillance capitalism. There's that phrase again. Attempting to bulldoze important urban, civic, and political issues. Sidewalk Labs won the proposal to develop a 12-acre section of Toronto's waterfront two years ago. Originally seen as a tool, who isn't, for addressing affordability and transportation issues. Quayside, Quayside? was meant to be one of the world's first smart cities, drawing on environmentally conscious design and emerging technologies to accelerate urban innovation and serve as a beacon for cities around the world. Initial public support for the project has uh, sagged as the project has been dogged by fears of data harvesting and privacy, privacy concerns and an overall lack of transparency. No, really? Um an entrepreneur, Sadia Muzava, resigned from the project's advisory panel, citing that lack of transparency and saying the organization showed, or Waterfront Toronto, that organization showed apathy and a lack of leadership regarding shaky public, shaky public trust. I don't know how you get the shaky public to trust you. The former privacy commissioner of Ontario resigned last month. I imagined us creating a smart city of privacy as opposed to a smart city of surveillance, she wrote. Sidewalk Labs reject McNamee's allegations, adding, while they welcome public debate, he does not seem very familiar with what we're actually proposing. They disputed McNamee's suggestion that they would use facial recognition technologies in the project. Anal recognition? No. As we've made clear, we believe that data collected in public space must be overseen and closely controlled by an independent and publicly accountable data trust, not Sidewalk Labs, Google, or any private company said a spokesperson for the development, Kirthana Rang. 
Strange how that phrase, surveillance capitalism, seems to be in the air these days because it's such a smart world. And now... It's time for me to raid the trades for you. In the, you bet you never thought you'd hear this in your lifetime, department. Five lessons from the growing pains of cannabis brands. I'll read it for you. Legal cannabis is quickly ripening into big business, but brands and marketers are still figuring out how to navigate it. So, Advertising Age brought together executives from Barney's, Canocclusive, Sherbinsky's, Green Lane, and others at a conference this week to speak about the state of the cannabis industry. Here's what we learned. Luke's experiences but affordable prices. In March, luxury retailer Barney's opened cannabis lifestyle shop, The High End, on the fifth floor of its Beverly Hills store with plans to open similar shops in San Francisco, Chicago, Boston, and eventually New York. Be patient, New York. Your turn will come. The store sells around 40 different ready-to-use cannabis-related items and high-end accessories. Barney's has found that the items flying off the shelves have modest price points. Even as it sells things like the Grand Fate gift set, a package of cannabis accessories for almost $9,000. That's not modest. Matthew Mazuka, creative director of Barney's New York, said its $60 precious stone pipes are constantly selling out. We're really starting to see what the consumer is reacting to, and price point is really driving that, he said. At the same time, he said customers enjoy the luxury of having a representative from the Bebo brand right there on hand to represent cannabis concierge. Just let that sink in for a moment. Who can educate customers about the plant and someone they can order actual weed from? At Barney's. Sasha Katie, chief marketing officer at cannabis-related accessories distributor Green Lane and co-founder of the cannabis lifestyle shop Higher Standards, get it? Says in many ways cannabis has always been more luxurious than a lot of traditional retail experiences. The pinnacle of luxury shopping is a personal shopper, he said, adding... Sounds awful lot like a good weed dealer. Not just for youth. Barney says Mazuka is seeing a wide array of customers to the high end, from young, young adults to those over 60. He described how he saw a mother bring in her children to buy shoes in order to bowl and some weed for herself. I thought that was such a cool mom. I really believe, he said, in terms of retail surviving, that there has to be authenticity. Originally, Barney's consisted, considered hosting youth-centered events, but reconsidered as they would alienate older customers, Mazuka said. 
Oh, a diversity gap hurts. Mary Pryor, co-founder and CEO of Canaclusive, uh, you know, Canaclusive, a program that works to support inclusion in the cannabis industry, says there's an absence of people of color and other minorities in the cannabis space, unquote. She says it's not being taken seriously. And then add age hands. The fact that many minorities are still being incarcerated for using the plant is an issue. And it's also destroying brands' reach and selling potentials, he said. It's in brands' interest to do things that call out social equality and promote inclusion, she says. Reason enough. Personalizing cannabis. Customers often don't know where to start, especially when it comes to the health claims of various strains. Mario Guzman, founder of cannabis brand Sherbinsky's, is looking into creating an algorithm that would pair a customer with a cannabis strain to match what they're looking for. Cannabis and algorithms. Marriage made in 2019. Oh, and several marketers agreed that being niche is smarter than trying to be the Starbucks or Apple of the cannabis world. Understand the demo, lean into it, and be the Amazon of that niche, says Jackie Stang, president of cannabis brand Quarter. You want to create your own lane, said Katie, speaking on the same panel. Being the Starbucks of cannabis is the last thing anyone on the planet needs. And most people who set out to be the Apple Store or Starbucks of cannabis typically end up looking like the McDonald's of cannabis, unquote. That's a mental image you probably never expected to entertain until I read the trades for you, which is why it's a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
New Orleans, this is Le Show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, just a, a, a word or two about uh, <laughs> President Trump. Um, probably uh, you noticed that he went to uh, England this past week. Went to England, went to Ireland, then went to France. England was a London a state visit that uh, the Queen had uh, finally agreed to to, uh, grant him. There was uh, some kerfuffle about it not being a state visit the last time he went to London. It was a working visit. No, this was pomp and um, an overlong waistcoat, according to most fashion observers worn by the the president. Um, But, you know, an overlong waistcoat could set a new trend, really, sticking out from under the thing like that. Um, he had, uh, some time, uh, some chat time with, uh, Prince Charles, as well as, um, uh, a good long time talking to the queen, her own self, um, uh, about which he talked later in the week when he was at the, uh, celebration of the 75th anniversary of, uh, D-Day. He was on, uh, one of the graveyards, pardon the expression, in France, where he granted an, an exclusive interview to Fox News um, nighttime anchor. That's what you drop over the side. Oh, yeah. Uh, Laura Ingram, in which he s- just raved about the Queen. She's a great, great lady. We had a great chat. We had uh, instant chemistry, he said. Um, just could not, could not be more fulsome in his praise of the uh, monarch of a country that we uh, we fought a war to get away, uh, out from under. Um, but that, you know, that's water, uh, that's water under the bridge, literally. Uh, there was somewhat less than the uh, advertised protest, I think, in what I saw, at least. I didn't see the, the big 
Trump baby balloon in many shots. Um, but it, I guess the helium shortage affected it. In any case, he's, he's uh, now back in this country. And as you know, he, he often talks with uh, his small circle of friends, large circle of friends, whatever size circle of friends he has. That's what he does in the evenings. Uh, Carl Icahn, the uh, financier uh, among them, and Rupert Murdoch among them as well. Um, so that all could conceivably sound like this. This week, for the first time, the action moves to the most somber stage of all. And for the businessman turned chief executive, the team expands to include a foreign monarch. Did you enjoy the parade, Mr. President? Oh, oh, very much so, your queenship. I can tell you, though, the, the Saudi parade had more gold in it. One believes at this point in general, the Saudis have more gold. Oh, you got that right. Did you enjoy the time you spent with my son? Uh, that was Charles, right? The Prince of Wales. I mean, they give me this briefing book. It would take like a librarian to read, you know, like uh, pictures of the whole family and everything, but... The Prince, one is told, is the one with the prominent ears. Yeah, Charles, yeah, lovely kid. Reminds me of one of my sons. Really? Just, you know, as a son thing. Mm-hmm. Yours is, uh, if I can say this to you without stepping on your royal feet, he's uh, kind of hung up on stuff. He has a range of intense interests. That's what I meant. I mean, he uh, he did quite a number on this climate thing. <laughs> and I'm sure you set him straight. Oh, I told him we had the cleanest air and the cleanest water, like crystal clear. You can see right to it. I take it he was amused. Uh, hard to read that character. He cops this more British than thou attitude, which on you it works like a charm. On him, you know, it gets real old real fast. Not, th- not that there's anything wrong with getting real old, I can say that. One feels that great age can give one great understanding, doesn't one? You know, even my doctor says I'm very young for my age, but I know what you mean. Which reminds me, Your Highness or Your Majesty, your whatever. <laughs> there is one task you could perform for me this week. And you were talking about understanding. I think you can understand how important this is. One doesn't take on many new tasks these days. Just just, just do a couple of primo media interviews. Nothing trashy. Tell them I'm your favorite American president since you went into the Queen business. I can get you on Fox News like that, by the way. But you know, Americans love you. You're like our favorite Queen. Easy. And what you say matters. Which is precisely why one says so little publicly. <laughs> All due respect, but that's like straight from Cloud Cuckoo Land, Your Honor. I bet you open a Twitter account, you'd have 10 million followers in an hour. Most people would kill for that, right? It beggars belief. Oh, if that's what you're worried about, I can tell you this. No beggars on Twitter, believe me. So what do you think? Just a little royal endorsement? Maybe, you know, in gratitude for the whole D-Day thing? Seriously, Mr. President, you you really must try your compote. If it's all the same to your majesty, 
I was told there would be burgers. Donald. Rupert. What'd you think? About what? My estate visit. Not bad for a so-called picture from Queens, right? Yeah, lovely footage. Mm-hmm. Great speech at D-Day, by the way. Well, they said, just read the speech, don't ad-lib, which is what they always say, but I figured we were already late getting to my golf course, so... No, no, it played very well. Hmm. Statesman-like. Mm -hmm. Which I know you don't want to do that often, but every once in a while... It's a change-up, right? Like, uh... What's his name used to throw? You wouldn't know him. You know cricket players, right? Donald, for me, sports is a profit center, not a leisure activity. But great trip. Played very well. Mm-hmm. And then I get on the plane, and what's this crap I'm seeing? Well, I mean, I got your channel on, yeah. and I'm scrolling through the coverage, and there's this Democrat Gillibrand. She's from New York. Very small time, a total loser. And it goes on through half a dozen commercial breaks. It was a town hall. We've got several Democrats doing them. Burnishes the brand. It's not good for the Fox part of the brand. It's good for the news part. Look, I don't blame you. It's that no good son of yours. Believe me, I know how you feel. Between you and me, I'll never forgive Ivana for making me name the kid Junior. But I don't need imitation fake news. If I want to watch Democrats, I'll turn on real fake news. Don't. Rockland's doing a great job. I mean, he's he's no James, but... Rupert, you've got a task this week. You up for it? Donald, I understand the price of access to power, as well as the next mogul. What do you need? No more Democrat town halls on Fox is what I freaking need. What are you, a non-mind reader? Look, mate, they're no threat to you. Our viewers watch these things t to laugh at them. See, this is what I don't get. I give Laura the most beautiful interview with this amazing backdrop, these terrific gravestones of heroes behind us. Like, forget what we were saying. Just look at how moving this all is. Probably drove your ratings through the damn roof. Although I don't have time to follow that stuff. I got tweets to write. Donald, I Donald. I think they've already committed to a few more of these. Good. I'm hitting the snooze button right now. But I'll talk to Lachlan. He's a good son. Say what we can do. Look, put him on in the daytime with all that so-called news Chris Wallace is so gung-ho about. Nobody's watching anyway, I can tell you that. That's a great suggestion, my friend. When this is all over, you might think about programming a network. Rupert. Yeah? When this is all over, mm. there'll be more. New team, new tasks, same mission. We're going to make the British royal family great again. Now, the world is his boardroom. The Presidentus. This week, you won't believe you're watching it. Now, news of the godly. New questions about how Catholic leaders deal with sexual misconduct rose this week after a Texas woman claimed in a news report that church officials in Houston allowed a priest with whom she had a sexual relationship to continue in ministry at a parish two hours away. That followed an Associated Press investigation which detailed an unsettling account of Laura Pontex, or Pontiques, who said Cardinal Daniel DiNardo head of the Archdiocese of Galveston, Houston, and the current president 
of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops failed to respond adequately to her claim three years ago that Monsignor Frank Rossi, a deputy to DiNardo, had begun a relationship in August 2012 after the cleric spent years as her priest and confessor. Pontique's claimed that Rossi induced her to perform sexual acts in his office during spiritual direction sessions, absolving her of her sins and eventually consummating their relationship with intercourse, all while the priest argued that such, quote, holy touches, unquote, were encouraged by Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle was not available for comment. Rossi also allegedly pushed her and her husband to no- donate millions of dollars to his church, St. Michael the Archangel. I'll say Arch. The fact the accuser is an adult has not spared the church new scrutiny about the hierarchy's slowness to respond to sexual misconduct claims or about what experts have been quick to call confusion regarding what constitutes consent. People make assumptions that maybe once someone's an adult, 18 or 19, that they can consent, says a professor at Baylor who has studied abusive sexual relationships between clergy and other adults. His research says, quote, there's no ability to consent to a relationship with a priest because of the dependence that the parishioner or congregant had on the priest. The Archbishop of the Archdiocese, sorry, of Galveston, Houston, acknowledged that Rossi's relationship, quote, included encounters of a sexual nature, unquote, but insisted the relationship never involved intercourse and that the priest never heard her confession during or after the relationship became physical. You see, a priest absolving someone with whom he is engaged in sexual sin, that's a crime under canon law. You could get excommunicated for that. Ponticus and her husband George argue that not only did Rossi manipulate and betray his parishioner, but that the archdiocese's attempts to mediate focused primarily on financial settlements. After the relationship was revealed to church officials, Rossi was... Ex- no, def- no. He was placed in a smaller parish nearby. The Diocese of Beaumont, where he still served until recently, the diocese now says he's been placed on temporary administrative leave. Texas law, ladies and gentlemen, says if a clergy person exploits a person's emotional dependency for sex, then it is without consent. And that's Texas. In Rossi's case, the breakdown of accountability could be seen as particularly acute while serving the Galveston-Houston Archdiocese in various roles. Rossi, here's a nice twist, he handled many of the region's abuse cases. It's a system! By the way, today's Washington Post says now, suddenly, at last, perhaps, through the medium of blogs and social media, women in the Protestant churches are starting to come forward with their own stories of sexual misbehavior by their own clergy. News of the Godly, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast and on a related subject, the Apologies of the Week. We're so sorry.
yes, as I say on a related subject, here's Francis the Talking Pope, who has apologized to the Roma people on behalf of the Catholic Church during his visit to Romania. At a meeting with the Roma people on the last day of his visit, he asked forgiveness for, quote, all those times in history when we have discriminated, mistreated, or looked askance at you, unquote. Roma people have faced persecution. Hmm, he didn't use that word. In Europe for centuries, hundreds of thousands are thought to have been killed during the Holocaust. Nowadays, Roma live mainly in southern and central Europe, make up 8% of Romania's population. Many live in poverty. Quote, I ask forgiveness in the name of the church and of the Lord, and I ask forgiveness of you. The Pope said in the town of Blage. Twitter has apologized for suspending accounts that were critical of the Chinese government's response to the Tiananmen Square protests of June 1989. Twitter wrote on its public policy feed that the suspended accounts were swept up in a weekly effort to crack down on, quote, spam and other inauthentic behaviors. Will you treat, please try to keep your behavior authentic, ladies and gentlemen? Sometimes our routine actions catch false positives or we make errors. We apologize, Twitter said. It added the counts that were suspended had not been reported by the Chinese government's the government. The suspension of the accounts both inside and outside China elicited criticism from U.S. Senator Marco Rubio. Rubio. Nice to hear from him. Little Marco. The Twitter accounts had taken aim at the policies of China's communist government and its handling of the crackdown in Tiananmen Square, which that government rarely mentions because they want the kids to grow up not knowing it happened. A mayor in Alabama. Enough said, right? No, I'll continue. A mayor in Alabama has apologized for a Facebook post suggesting that homosexuals, abortion rights advocates, and others should be killed. Carbon Hill Mayor Mark Chambers, in a Facebook post on Friday, wrote in all caps. There's another tip-off. I think Mayor in Alabama in all caps. You got it covered. Quote, we live in a society where homosexuals lecture us on morals, transvestites lecture us on human biology, baby killers lecture us on human rights, and socialists lecture us on economics. Carbon Hill, city of less than 2,000 people, majority of whom are white. He faced swift black backlash online for the post and for an exchange with one of his Facebook friends. The only way to change, the friend wrote to him, I hate to think of the country my grandkids will live in unless somehow we change. Chambers, the mayor, responded, the only way to change it would be to kill the problem out. I know it's bad to say, but without killing them out, there's no way to fix it. Unquote. Not just kill them, kill them out. He initially denied he wrote the remarks. I don't think I posted that, he told an NBC affiliate. I think that's somebody else's post. Questioned further by the station about the Facebook page, which contained birthday greetings and pictures of his family. And asked whether someone was posting as him on Facebook. He said, I don't know. And then he issued a lengthy apology on Facebook. I and I alone are responsible for the comment that was made. He wrote on the now deactivated page, although I believe my comment was taken out of context and was not targeting the LGBTQ community, I know it was wrong to say anyone should be killed. He didn't apologize for saying they should be killed out, though. He was elected in 2014. He says, I'm truly sorry that I have embarrassed our city. I love this city. And while in office, I've done everything in my power to make this a better place for our families. 
he was not available for comment or or commenting out for that matter. Dayline Hillsborough, New Jersey. The Hillsborough Public School District has apologized to special needs students who were dismissed from their senior prom early last month. The administration says it's taking steps to ensure nothing similar will ever happen again. Although it didn't specify what actions it was taking. The apologies come weeks after the school district aides serving as paid chaperones at the mid-May prom told a group of seven students to leave before the 11 p.m. curfew, despite the school's mandate that no one was supposed to leave early. Parents spoke to the school district, to the town, and the district launched an investigation. In addition to in-person apologies, the principal sent home a letter to the parents reiterating the apology and saying their students deserve better. They also offered a special activity to those students to remind them that they're valued members of the school family and the Board of Education also apologized. Some parents of students with disabilities did ask for an early dismissal from the prom to avoid the rush when the uh, other students left. But uh, that was not the reason, apparently, for the forcing all of the special needs students to And they were dismissed earlier than requested and contrary to their request to stay. The Board of Education agrees that this resulted in an unacceptable scenario, leaving students and their families with the impression that they could not stay to the end of the prom, which should not have happened, said the administrators. Did you go to your prom? Hank Haney has has apologized multiple times and has been suspended from his Sirius XM radio show for predicting that a Korean golfer with the last name Lee would win the U.S. Women's Open. He uh, commented further on the matter last Sunday after a Korean golfer with the last name Lee actually did win the tournament. I knew Lee would win, he said. Then he deleted the comment, according to TMZ. He apologized later in the show when informed that some people were offended by his remarks. He also apologized on Twitter, saying he was trying to make a point about the overwhelming success of the Korean players on the tour. I offended people, and I'm sorry. Bette Midler apologized this week after posting a fake quote attributed to Donald Trump in which he purportedly disparaged Republican voters in a People magazine interview of uh, 21 years ago. I apologize. This quote turns out to be a fake from way back in 1516. Don't know how I missed it, but it sounds so much like him that I believed it was true, she said on Twitter. In addition to the apology, Midler also included a link to the Rio Gazette Journal debunking the quote. The quote was uh, from, supposedly, Donald Trump about if he were to run for president, which, of course, he later did. But this was when it was still, oh, so hypothetical. He said, if I were to run, I'd run as a Republican. They're the dumbest group of voters in the country. They'd be any, believe anything on Fox News. I could lie, and they'd eat it up. I bet my numbers would be terrific, unquote. A fake quote. Despite her apology, Midler has not deleted the original tweet, which has racked up more than 12,000 retweets. The meme's provenance links back to at least 2015 when Snopes fact-checked the quote and proved it was false. And Niels Hogel has apologized. The former German nurse 
used to push his patients to the end, edge of death's door, injecting them with drugs to induce cardiac arrests, and then resuscitate them and relish in the resulting praise. In dozens of cases, though, he couldn't bring them back, according to prosecutors. He's accused in 100 patients' deaths over the first five years of the century when he worked at a clinic and then in a hospital in northern Germany. This week, he apologized to the families of his victims. Thursday, a court convicted the 42-year-old of 85 counts of murder and sentenced him to life in prison, citing the seriousness of the crimes. He's admitted to 56 of those 85 killings. Now everybody draws a line somewhere. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen. Copyright feature of this broadcast. Just a note about our friend the Atom. The U.S. government this week says it will reclassify some of the nation's most dangerous radioactive waste to a lower level. Critics say that move would make it cheaper and easier to walk away from cleaning up nuclear weapon production sites in Washington State, Idaho, and South Carolina. The Energy Department says labeling some high-level waste as low-level will save $40 billion in cleanup costs. Zap, you're low level. Don't thank me. That was from the LA Times, by the way. That was reported in the LA Times, which, yes, still exists. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this edition of the show, which also still exists and will still exist next week. Creek don't rise. Same time on these radio stations, whenever you want it on your other audio device of choice. Hi, Alexa. You're looking good today. And it'd be just like if maybe Alexa got a little Botox, if you'd agree to join with me then. But you already. Thank you very much. Uh Uh-huh. show chapeau to the San Diego desks. Thanks as always to and to the Hawaii desk. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead and to Garrett Pittman here at WWNO for help with today's program. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. And thanks to Mac Rabinek for the decades of great music and pretty good Grigri. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Changes Easy Radio Network. So long from New Orleans. <laughs>